This is Joe Caramagna, and you're listening to We Be Geeks. USB microphones and headphones provided by CAD Audio. CAD Audio, expression through innovation. Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is a Streaming Freedom Audio Bulletin. It cannot be traced, it cannot be stopped, and it is the only free voice left in the geek revolution. And welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. It is the full crew again, Brett, Jules, Derek, and Mike. And I have a special guest for us this week, guys. Uh, before I bring them on, I asked um, the PR person from uh, Superfan Productions who works with Dark Horse Comics a question on what is this guest's favorite Beatles song? And you're going to question why the Beatles? So as I bring them in... I want to introduce our guest this week, Vivek Tawari. Writer Hello, of thank you. Writer of the Fifth Beetle, the Brian Epstein story. And of course, I try and yeah, hit, I try and hit his favorite favorite song with a little help from my friends, <laughs> which is from the uh, Sgt. Pepper album. Can't go wrong with that one. No, that's my favorite album of theirs. Yep. Yeah. So, I'm I'm just going to start right off. Why? Brian Epstein and why the Brian and uh, why the fifth Beatle, the Brian Epstein story? Yeah, so I mean, I am a lifelong Beatles fan, so certainly I, I started coming from that place. But I, um, in 1991, to, to, to date myself, I, uh, I found myself in business school. I was on a track to join my family business, which was not something I was excited about. It would have seen me working in finance and food products. And what I was dreaming about doing was working in the arts and entertainment industries. Uh, I was at the Wharton School. And, uh, you know, I thought Wharton, it's a great school. They, they've got to have some resources for, for kids who are interested in pursuing careers in the arts. And uh, and to be fair, they do now. But back in 1991, they, they just didn't. And so I sort of had to take it upon myself um, to get an, an arts business background. And being that lifelong Beatles fan who thought the Beatles and, uh, and their manager, Brian, wrote and then rewrote the rules of the pop music business, I thought I should study the life of Brian Epstein. And, and I was initially looking for uh, the business story. You know, I was literally a business student seeking, you know, academic inspiration. So I wanted to know, you know, how did he get the Beatles a record deal when every record label turned them down? You know, I had heard he'd come up with the suits and the haircuts. So how did he, how did that happen? You know, knowing my, my world history, I knew that the British band had never made an impact in the United States before the Beatles. So I wondered, you know, how did he convince Ed Sullivan to book the band? You know, the, these were the stories that I was chasing um, as a Beatles fan and as a business student. And, uh, and I did un- uncover those stories and they were fascinating and inspiring. But when I learned, you know, on top of that, the personal side of Brian's life, that he was gay at a time where it was against the law, that he was Jewish at a time of incredible anti-Semitism, and that he was from Liverpool and, you know, Liverpool prior to the Beatles um, was not a town that had any cultural influence. So, you know, I realized that Brian was in many ways the ultimate outsider. And I, I certainly don't want to suggest I've had those kind of obstacles in my life, but I'm a first generation American. My parents are immigrants originally from India. And, you know, what was expected of me as the, the son of Indian immigrants was to become a doctor or an engineer or study technology. Or as I said, uh, you know, I didn't want to do any of those things. So then I was supposed to join my family business. 
you know, I definitely wasn't supposed to write comic books and, and produce musicals, <laughs> you know. And so the, the Brian Epstein story, as I uncovered it, it really just encouraged me to chase my dreams. You know, I, I always say if there is one message to the fifth Beatle, it is that no dream is too impossible and no person too unlikely to realize that dream. And, and in a lot of ways, I think that's the Beatles story, too. Yeah. Um, but, but for me, it was really it was really Brian's story that struck a really deep chord and, and has just, you know, been a really inspiring, uh, motivating factor in my life. I, I refer to Brian as my historical mentor. You know, he had died in 67 and I was born in 73. But I've really I've really studied his life and, and made him my mentor. So, uh, that's a long answer to your question. No, it, <laughs> but, uh, it's perfectly fine. Why, Brian. <laughs> So doing all the research on Brian, what was one of the most interesting facts you discovered that is maybe not known that you were able to um, to expose in the book? Well, I mean, I, I guess it's, you know, to me, the researching Brian's life, it felt like everything was a was a revelation, you know, to find that here was a guy that that, you know, was largely responsible for Sgt. Pepper's being brought into the world. You know, the record label was nervous about Sgt. Pepper's. They said the songs were too druggy and the album cover was going to be controversial with all the the, uh, you know, the these likenesses of famous people on the front. And it was a right. departure in style. And were the fans going to accept it? And, you know, Brian really had to push all those things through and he was largely a behind the scenes architect for lack of another word of the psychedelic era and of the summer of love and yet you know when when i thought of the summer of love you know as somebody that was born after it you know i was like oh it sounds like such an idyllic time you know free love free spirits you know and it's like well it was free love if you had the right kind of love you know but there was a whole other group of people who you know the lgbtq community for whom it wasn't free love at all like they had to spend the summer indoors or they would get sunburned you know like stay in the closet you know i mean it was you know while while the uk is remembered for ushering in this this period of 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 free love and and the and you know bands like the beatles making their mark you know it was at the same time against the law it was a felony to be gay in the united kingdom you know to me that was that was really and and I, i probably sound ignorant for somebody who was there who lived through it but for me as a young person that was that was i opening i couldn't i couldn't believe that you know so there were there were a number of these like sort of very big picture um revelations and then there were all sorts of micro beatles revelations you know we we um we in the united states where i grew up you know we give ed sullivan a lot of credit for um you know for making the beatles career over here and and he deserves much of that it's true that the sullivan show was instrumental in um in building uh, u.s beatlemania but you know one of the things that i i didn't realize and really is a myth uh you know is, is a misperception is that Ed Sullivan was not keen on bringing the Beatles over here. You know, everybody thinks that, mm-hmm. oh, he was a huge champion and, and he's the guy responsible. Well, that's not really true. Like, you know, he, he wasn't that excited about them. No, British man had never made an impact over here. He thought they were a novelty act. You know, Brian really had to, to all but twist his arm to book the Beatles. And, you know, so, so there were all these like small micro revelations, but also these very big picture uh, sort of perspective shifts that, uh, that I got from doing the research. Now, I, I've got one bit of trivia about their very first uh, 
Ed Sullivan appearance. Yeah. What other famous musician, singer, uh, performer was on the Ed Sullivan show the same night as the Beatles? I, I am, I'm going to, I'm not going to pretend to know the answer to that question. I, I don't know. I've seen the show, but I, I can't remember. I was probably so focused on the, on he was, the Beatles of it all. He, he was playing the artful Dodger in Broadway's Oliver. It was Dave Engelbert. It was no, it Davy Jones. Davy Jones. My God. Davey jo- and, <laughs> and I actually worked um, with the, when Davy Jones was at Epcot. I worked with him one year um, and actually talked to him briefly about it, about what it was like to be on the same night as the That's Beatles. Amazing. And, and did he feel like, oh, because the Beatles were on, was, was the rest of the show pretty much overshadowed? He goes, it was just an experience to be a part of that history. And then, yeah. to, and then to know what, a couple of years later, he becomes part of a group that is actually, quote unquote, mocking the Beatles with the monkeys. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So, so he was on the show in in his capacity as a as a Broadway actor. Correct. It's amazing. Huh. Correct. Amazing. It's interesting. What a wild history that stuff is, right? And it's, it's yeah. inspiring. It's really inspiring yeah. to think about it. So there wasn't really much information out there about Brian. Um, how did you go about uh, doing the research for this, or how did you even know where to start? Finding yeah, it? I mean, you're you're absolutely right. You know, the Fifth Beetle is is the only book in print about Brian Epstein, graphic novel or otherwise. Um, you know, as a quick aside to get to give some credit, there is a wonderful book um, called The Man Who Made the Beatles by Ray Coleman. You can find now pretty easily on Amazon Marketplace or Aid Books or any number of used book websites. Um, but it's been out of print for about 30 years. And when I began my studies of, of Brian in 1991, you know, there were no used book websites. And I literally thought, you know, I should, as I said, I should study the, the life of Brian Epstein. I should learn about the business of the Beatles. And I went into the uh, to the bookstore on campus and I was stunned that, to find, you know, as I I said there were no books about Brian. I remember literally finding a book about John Lennon's astrologist, and I couldn't find a book about the guy that discovered the Beatles. You know, it, it was, didn't make any sense to me. Um, so I, I really had no choice but to kind of read all the respected Beatles books I could find. You know, and you'd read these 200, 300 page books about the Beatles, and you'd get maybe 10 or 15 decent pages about Brian. Pages that I would, would later learn were, you know, full of half truths or, or complete misinformation. Um, but what, what I did get was I slowly got a picture in my head of the people who knew Brian best. His friends, his family, his clients, his allies, his enemies, his detractors, you know, everybody. And um, and then, uh, you know, because, because there was no other uh, information readily available, I had really no choice but to do interviews. I mean, l- l- let's fully put 1991 in perspective. Uh, you know, there's also no Wikipedia then. There's no YouTube. There's no nice. Google. You know, there's none of these resources that we so take for granted. It was a whole yeah. different world. A whole different <laughs> world. Totally. So, I mean, I literally pulled a, a telephone book. You know, we used phone books back then. I pulled a phone book <laughs> off the shelf and, and I looked up the name and telephone numbers of people who knew Brian, who lived within a two-hour radius of New York, which was home, and Philadelphia, where I was at college. And I literally just cold-called these folks. And I said, you know, I, I just told the truth. I said, I'm a, I'm a student. And and, uh, I'm not a journalist or a screenwriter or anything like that. I just I'm a student who's looking for more inspiration. And the little bit I know about Brian, I find it, find very inspiring. I'm just trying to learn more. 
and you know, would you would you be willing to talk to me? And uh, and I, you know, the, the the way I describe it is, I was so excited about reaching out to these folks that I forgot to be intimidated, <laughs> and uh, and not one of them turned me down. You know, they and, and a number of people that you know who I was later told like, oh, you know, Peter Brown, he'll never talk to you. You know, Peter Brown was um, had worked with Brian and was was responsible for for assisting in a lot of areas of the Beatles management. Uh, in the ballad of John and Yoko, there's the line Peter Brown called to say, "You can make it okay." Um, and uh, and he went on to become one of the UK's top publicists. I mean, he literally does PR for the Queen, you know. And uh, and he wrote a book called The Love You Make. And everybody told and like his whole thing is like, I don't talk about the Beatles. It's in my book. If you want to know what I think about the Beatles, just read my book. And everybody was like, Peter Brown will never talk to you. First of all, you'll never get him on the phone because he's too busy doing PR for the royal family. And like, and and even if you did get him, he would tell you, I don't talk about the Beatles anymore. I cold called Peter Brown's office. I left a message with the receptionist. Literally within two hours, I got a call back from Peter saying, of course, I would be happy to talk to you about Brian. You know, I mean, it was just, it's really a testament to like, if your heart's in the right place, you just need that. You know, you really just need to ask, and you'd be surprised how often the answer might just be yes. You know, wow. and that and that's how it that's how it happened, and that's why so many of the stories in the Fifth Beetle really are are you know uh, are previously untold because of, because they came through interviews. They weren't they weren't research that I got from from you know from newspaper searches or other books or or interviews uh, you know that had preexisted. They were things I, I literally dragged out on my own, and 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 a number and you know the the most interesting interesting stories were the ones that, that I uncovered over the course of a period of time, you know, by, by, by focusing on, on people who lived, uh, you know, within driving distance from, from where I was, you know, I was able to sit down with folks and, and occasionally ask for a follow-up meeting or I'm coming home for the summer. Would you mind having another cup of coffee? And then, you know, slowly over the course of a number of years, you know, these people, people like Sid Bernstein, the legendary concert promoter who brought the Beatles over to the U.S. for the first time, you know, they became friends. And as they became friends and they trusted me more, they started to really open up to me about areas of Brian's life that like being gay at a time where it was a felony that they previously just never had really talked a lot about. And, and quite frankly, it was areas that I'll be the first to admit, but I wasn't initially interested in like I didn't care about Brian's personal life I wanted to know about the Beatles you know which is why when journalists call like they want to talk about the Beatles they don't ask questions about Brian's personal life it's not that it's not what they're what they're out to get you know and it is one of these interesting ironies that you know in some ways my life my research etc would have been easier if I had had Wikipedia and Google and YouTube but in another very real sense I suspect if I had those resources I would have read the Wikipedia article I would have looked at a bunch of, of interviews videos on YouTube and, you know, I would have done a little bit more online research and then I would have stopped. You know, I would have gotten some of the Beatles stories I was looking for. I would have thought that's inspiring and wonderful and then I'd be done, you know, but the fact that I had to, I had no choice but to dig deep. I uncovered this crazy stuff that I never knew. Oh, he was gay? The guy that was like, you know, that helped to be a band spread a great message of love. All you need is love. She loves you. Lovely Rita. The guy that helped that band actually turned out to be gay. Wait, Wait, at a time where it was against the law? Like the summer of love, and he was it was against the law. You know, it was just the whole thing was so revelatory to me. It was awesome, and uh, and I, I really encourage you know people these days who are doing their research like dig deep. You know, don't just don't just spend an hour on Google. You know, just do do the work and dig deep, and and you'll be surprised with something really inspiring. That's pretty inspiring because I know like anytime I need any information, I just go right to Google. <laughs> it's just easier. But yeah, I think I think that that just that message in itself is good. Um, 
to anybody who's, you know, doing something like this to be as accurate as possible. Um, but yeah, when I was reading it, like I, I had no idea any of this. Like I know the Beatles, I love the Beatles, but I, I was really excited to read it because it gave me a much different perspective on the whole entire thing. Thank you. So it's really eye opening. That, that was the, that was the point. So, uh, I'm glad to hear that I did my job because that, that's, that's what I cut out to do. You know, I, yeah, I really I feel that Brian's story is as inspiring as as the Beatles' music and and the way everybody all over the world knows knows the Beatles and their story. I feel like people should know Brian's story and, and with a with a specific agenda. Like I, it, it's inspired me. It's changed my life, and my agenda is to to hopefully inspire others to chase their dreams. You know, and and this book was written three years ago, but I think like now, you know, whatever your your political leanings are, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you know, in the wake of this election, the country is is divided and there's clearly a lot of anger and fear and, 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 and unrest and confusion and now more than ever we need to we need to believe in dreams, you know? And so I think that message resonates all the time. I mean, obviously, it's the reason the book was well received three years ago. But here we are three years after that day. And the message is still needed, you know, as much or more than ever. Now, now why why the graphic novel um, format instead of just the regular novel? Yeah, so you know, I, I do have a, a long and and, uh, and and creative and, and and sort of intelligent answer to that question, which I'll give you in a second. But but you know, the the, the podcast is called We Be Geeks, and and to be totally honest, it's because I'm a comics geek. You know, like I always wanted to do a <laughs> nice. comic, and, and I finally got a chance to do one. That's the honest answer. Is I just That's always awesome. wanted to do one, and I finally got to do one. That's awesome. Um, you that's know, a perfect answer. That, that's the true answer, you know. <laughs> uh, but but there, there are other reasons. Um, you know, when I was starting to think about structuring the story, I um, one of the early decisions I made is that I was going to focus on the years he spends with the Beatles. Uh, you know, through exposition and backstory and hallucinations and dream sequences, we learn about his childhood and what makes him tick, and we get some of his past. But it really focuses on uh, on 1961 to 67, which is the year he spends with the band. And so it starts in 1961, Liverpool, which is dark, gray, drab, depressing, a little industrial. You know, in my head, I thought of it as being a very black and white world. And then the story ends in 1967, London, which, as we discussed earlier, was the summer of love. It was the dawn of the psychedelic era, you know, there's literally a big event in the UK that year called a Technicolor Dream. So in my creator head, uh, you know, I, I saw the art, the arc rather of the Brian Epstein story as mirroring the arc of the movement from the black and white to color. To me, it was the period where a very black and white world burst into color. And, um, and I believe that the, the two media that most powerfully use color as a narrative tool are graphic novels and, and, and filmed entertainment, film and television. But, but really the, it's those two. And, and so I really did set about from the very beginning to do both. And then at a certain point, it became clear that the graphic novel was just going to happen first. And as I said earlier, I'm just like a huge comic nerd, and so I always wanted to do a comic, so I really did sort of focus on that uh, as a primary passion. Um, yeah, the... Um, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, and I was going to say, and, and, and the, the last sort of pretentious, intelligent reason for choosing the graphic novel format was I also wanted a format that, that, for lack of another way of putting it, would just be fun to read. I mean, while the story has a lot of serious elements to it, I mean, he was, was gay at a time where it was a felony, he dies at the age of 32, he got hooked on prescription pills. There's a lot of very, very intense, heavy themes to it. But I believe that reading comics is just, it's a fun thing to do to read a comic. And I wanted the experience of, of, of the fifth Beatle to be entertaining and, and to be enjoyable. 
And, um, and I very specifically also kept the graphic novel thin. Like it's a, it's a, I think it's 128 pages. And I really didn't want it to be much more than 120 pages because I wanted also someone to feel like they could sit down and, and read it in one sitting if they had a couple hours or, or a short plane ride. Um, you know, and I believed with, with those two things, it being an enjoyable medium and it being a quick read or a relatively quick read, I thought we would just get more readers. You know, I thought if I had written a 300 page prose biography about Brian Epstein, like sure, there are some hardcore people. Beatles fans that would read that, but it would be a far more niche-oriented and targeted audience, whereas 120-page graphic novel, you might just be able to turn on some people who are comic fans and not Beatles fans, or Beatles fans and not comic fans, or people who don't care about either, but see it at that airplane bookstore and, and take a look. Forget me, you know, I, you know, take me out of the equation. They just look at the art, and they see the art is really beautiful, and this new paperback version is only 15 bucks, and it's a quick read, and sounds intriguing. I might just give it a chance, you know, which in our busy work lives, we might, you might not give a chance to a 300-page prose biography, but a 120 page graphic novel, why not? You know, yeah. those are all the reasons why I, why I wanted to do it. Yeah. I was going to say that the art of uh, Andy Robinson really uh, complements the uh, story well, and that really uh, helps to tell the story really well. No question about it. He did absolutely breathtaking work on the book. And Kyle Baker, you know, he did just a, a seven page sort of insert sequence, but Kyle's work on this book is, is extraordinary. It was just, I was very blessed to, to work with two amazing artists. How did you end up meeting uh, Andrew then? So I met Andrew through his, his agent at the time, a gentleman named Mark Irwin, um, who you may also have heard of. He's a, a pretty well-respected artist and inker in his own right. Um, but Mark uh, and I have mutual friends, and when I decided I wanted to do it, uh, this is a graphic novel. I, um, you know, I, as I said, I'm one of those geeks that have been reading comics ever since I was a kid, and you know, I'm also the guy that will, will buy every uh, you know expanded special edition that comes with pages of script, and I would compare the script to the final pages. You know, so even though I had not written a comic script before. I, I had read many comic scripts and I was sort of familiar with the format. I'd read the Scott McCloud uh, making comics and understanding comics books and I'd read the classic Will Eisner books on sequential art and you know so I was very familiar with the world but knowing that I hadn't done it before I wanted to get help and so some mutual friends introduced me to Mark and they were like Mark's a smart guy he'll totally help you. So Mark came on board very early in the project's life as sort of my first uh, independent editor if you will. Like he would read over my script and say this works, this doesn't work he, you know, he'd give me some great notes. And another thing I tasked him with was helping me find an artist. And he repped Andrew at the time, so it was an easy one for him. And he suggested Andrew. And uh, again, being a comics geek, I knew Andrew through his through his work. I didn't know him personally, but I, I knew his, his cover work and I knew his talent. And I knew that he just purely on the basis of his sheer talent would be amazing. Um, but when I sat down with him, it, it, it was also very clear that he understood the heart of the story. You know, I had written a script and he had read my script before we sat down and he said, you know, I was in, you know, much like much like the way I was when I first started studying this, and much the way I suspect most of our, our readers are when they first come to the book. Andrew was intrigued by the Beatles. You know, he said when I first heard the idea, he said, you know, how exciting for an artist to be able to draw the Beatles. But but when I read your script, I realized it wasn't really a Beatles story. You know, the Beatles were almost the Trojan horse that kind of gets you in the to, through the back door, getting to tell a story about about somebody who's, who's really, you know, his story actually has nothing to do with music. It's a human story. And the fact that Andrew got that right away made it very clear that he was, was the perfect guy for the book. So being that this On was... top of the breathtaking art that he's able to yeah. do. So. <laughs> yeah. So being that this was your first uh, your first 
foray into writing comics. Uh, how was the experience, and do you have more comics planned in your future? So, yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I mean, it was so much fun to do. Um, you know, the many things that I, I've, I've been fortunate to do in, in my career, you know, writing a comic was, was the highlight. You know, it, did. it was really a dream come true. I mean, literally, my er- I, I believe that I learned to read by reading comics. My earliest memories of reading are sitting on my mom's lap reading Tintin books with her. Um, you know, and uh, it's just so for me, it was it was a total dream. And uh, I do have more comic work coming up that I'm incredibly excited about. Um, I'm going to be doing a, uh, a Star Trek one shot with IDW. So I won't oh, be nice. on the series, but I'll be awesome. Nice. Awesome. Huge Star Trek fan. So that's, that's another, uh, another little bit of a dream come true for me. Um, and, uh, and I literally just in the past month started to finally get off my butt to start working on my next graphic novel, which will be a, a follow up of sorts to the Fifth Beetle in, in some ways a prequel. The, uh, the tentative title is um, is a mess of blues, the Colonel Parker and the unmaking of Elvis Presley. Um, so it's the oh. Colonel Parker story. Um, and if you've read The Fifth Needle, you'll know that I don't have a lot of respect for that guy. <laughs> we could tell, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's part of why I've been putting off actually moving on this. And uh, and it was a number of my create my fellow writers really encouraged me to finally do it. And I, I want to say it was Charles Soule who, uh, who pointed out to me. He was like, you know, Vivek, a lot of people have written books about Hitler, and it doesn't mean that they love Hitler. And I was like, that's a good point. A good point. Yeah. So, um, so that's my next big graphic novel project. And um, I'm... Uh, in conversations with artists right now and I hope uh, you know if not by the end of the year by early uh, early in the new year I'll be able to announce uh, you know who's going to be, uh, be the art, my art partners on that okay. I was going to say for, for your first book winner of the Will Eisner Comic Industry Award for best reality based work to yeah, Harvey it was awesome <laughs> two, two Harvey Awards including best original graphic album yeah, it was amazing. A Lambda Literary Award finalist for Best LGBT Graphic Novel. Winner nice. of the National Cartoonist Society Rubin Award for yeah. w- for Andrew Robinson's art. Um, winner of the Forward Reviews 2013 Indie Fab Award Graphic Novel of the Year. And then on top of that, um, the book is enshrined at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> yeah. How oh, is that? That's awesome. So unbelievably surreal. I mean, the year that this book came out, 2000, it came out in November 2013. So 2014 was sort of the first full year that the book was out. And I felt like like such a broken record that it felt like every two weeks I was like, it's a dream come true. And it was like, it just, <laughs> it just kept getting more and more surreal. I mean, it's just honestly. Um, and, and, and I have to say, we knew when we were making this book, you know, I, I won't lie. Like we knew we had something special. Like I knew that um, that the Brian Epstein story was inspiring, and I knew that I was working with these absolutely brilliant artists. When Andrew's pages started to come in, they were, as I said, the word, the only word I keep repeating is they were breathtaking. And so I, you know, we we all believed we had something that would would have legs and that would find an audience. But I will also say, no one thought that we would win those awards because awards are given out obviously in, in the year that, that the book comes out. And, and we just didn't think that that we thought we would get there. Eventually we thought that like for a story that's tied to the Beatles, the Beatles never go out of fashion. It's timeless. We will find our audience, you know, eventually people will, will learn about this. 
And, and, you know, a few years in, we might get there, you know? And I will tell you, true story, like, the, the, the book came out right before Thanksgiving, and right before it came out, um, you know, we had a call with Dark Horse, and they said, you know, once we're through the Thanksgiving holidays, we should, um, we should have a conference call to discuss the New York Times bestseller list, because there's various things we can do to, you know, increase sales and maybe try to get on that list. And, you know, there's certain stores that sell more books. Maybe we can do special promotions in those stores. Let, let's see what we can do to, to get on that list, right? And literally, I got a call from, it was Paul Levitz, um, you know, the former head of DC, who's a dear friend of mine. I got a call on, I turned my phone off on Thanksgiving to spend it with my, my family. And so Friday morning, I turned my phone back on and there's a message from Paul Levitz saying, hey, congratulations on the New York Times. And I was like, what, 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 what's he talking about? I was like, <laughs> and I was like, what, congratulations about what? And he was like, you're on the back seller list. I mean, it was lit. We debuted at number five. Nobody expected that. Not even the publisher. I mean, it completely blindsided us, you know, it, 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 and then th- in three weeks, it went to number one. It was like the, the early sales and the awards. N- really, I'm, I'm not being disingenuous. None of us saw that coming. Yes, we, we all believed that the book was going to do well eventually. We did have that arrogance to us, um, but but none of us, uh, none of us uh, believed that that first year was going to play out the way it did. It was really, uh, it was really very surreal. Now, what's different now with this new edition that's out as opposed to the one that came out in 2013? Yeah, thank you for asking that. You know, I, I um, you know, this is going to sound very self-serving, but 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 it's true that like I, I very often as a fan am disappointed with with extended editions or you know 20th anniversary editions. I feel they they very often have some lame gallery tacked on at the back that just seems like they dug something up in order to. Have to, to squeeze a, the publisher to squeeze an extra buck out of a fan, um, and, and I really we we all tried really hard for that not to be the case with with this new Fifth Beetle expanded edition, um, and and in large part that's because things literally have changed. It, it wasn't just going back into the archives. You know, when the book came out in 2013, I'll give you two examples. Um, Billy J. Kramer, who's one of Brian Epstein's uh, other artist clients, he wrote an introduction to the book, and the first line of Billy's introduction, which has a date on it. So it's, so it's, so it's, it's a dated and it's a moment in time, 2013. But the first line says, I am baffled by the fact that Brian Epstein has not been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, a couple years after the book came out, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the Rock Hall called me up to their infinite credit. And they said, we know he should be inducted. So we're inducting him. But we also realize we don't know much about him. And w- would you, you're, you seem to be one of the experts in the world. Would you help us? And so I was very honored to work with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on that. And uh, that was a, the same period where they, they decided that the book belonged in the hall itself. And it was just an awesome moment for me. But that was a huge change. And so in the expanded edition, there was an essay that I wrote about my experiences working with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and how much had happened um, for Brian and for Brian's legacy in, in the years since the book was published. Um, in the original edition of the book, uh, Howard Cruz, the um, the pioneering uh, LGBTQ cartoonist who wrote Stock Rubber Baby. He wrote an afterword for the book um, called The Freedom to Marry, sort of uh, explaining um, that fight. And, you know, I, I, I don't think The Fifth Beetle is a political statement. Um, it's not an activist book. I'm certainly not a politician or an activist myself, but, but I do hope that the book is an inspiring book. And I, I've always hoped that people will close the book wanting to make a difference in the world, pursue their own dreams. Um, and so Howard wrote an essay in the original edition of the book suggesting that if you're 
motivated to do something and you're looking for a way to place to put your energy, here's one wonderful organization that if it had existed in Brian's time would have made a huge difference in his life. Like Brian couldn't have imagined his sexuality being legal, much less there being a day when he might be able to like get married and adopt a child, you know? So, so put your efforts into freedom to marry in 2013 and, you know, very happily in the years between 2013 and 2016, the Supreme court ratified the freedom to marry. And now, now it's, now the, the, the fight has moved on. And so in our expanded edition, Howard Cruz has written a new essay explaining how that happened and, and, and suggesting some other areas that you could put your um, your energies. Another, a new organization that was born in the wake of Freedom to Marry called Freedom for All Americans. And, you know, that's just the sort of the essays that are in there. And I, I was invited by um, by Ted to do a TED Talk on on, uh, on Brian Epstein and the Fifth Beatle. And, you know, I'm, I'm humble and self-aware enough to know that that was because I had written a best-selling book. You know, that's how they'd heard about me. And so we were able to, to transcribe that in, in the expanded edition, something that simply did not exist when the book first came out. And then, of course, there's the art sections. You know, the um, you know Andrew, a lot of people have, have uh, praised Andrew for how he captured the likenesses so well. And you know, he won the Rubin Award. Well, you know, um, he, he has always said it, it, that was a lot of work and it was really hard for him. And so, the, the, you know, he has a 25-page uh, bonus material section in which he shows you his early character designs for Brian and the Beatles that weren't quite working and how, you know, the things he did to sort of nail those those iconic figures in a way that the likeness was accurate, but it still was something that, that felt like his own. Um, and Kyle Baker, you know, Kyle just had a, a seven-page sequence in the book. And so I really wanted more of Kyle's artwork in the book. So we gave Kyle an art gallery section in which he had both a mixture of, of designs that he had done for the book, which are, are old, so to speak, but also some brand new artwork and brand new portraitures that he did just for the extended edition. So again, I, I hope we've created something that has a mixture of old stuff that the fans have never seen, but also just brand new stuff because the world has changed in the past three years. Um, so if we did our job correctly, it really will feel like like not just something we tacked on to like make an extra buck and re-release the book, but but we'll actually have some material that will add sort of a new understanding of Brian's legacy and a new understanding about how we made the book in the first place. Okay. It's interesting. After all these years, you can still feel uh, Brian's um, mark on the uh, pop world. I mean, with all the boy bands and everything like that, everything's about image. Sure. And that's what he yeah. did with the Beatles yeah. to get them with the suits and the haircuts and everything like that. Yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel Brian, you know, in the UK, certainly, you can see Brian's, uh, you know, his influence on everyone from Robbie Williams to Coldplay. I mean, it's it's really that. And, and certainly, over here as well, you know, My Chemical Romance is the, you know, in direct descendants of, of what Brian did with the Beatles, and, and I mean, Black Parade is another one of my favorite records of all time, and you know, you can see you can see a direct line from that record to to, to Sgt. Pepper's and, and Pink Floyd's The Wall, both both of which are pieces that Brian was was Sgt. Pepper's directly and The Wall indirectly, you know, responsible for for record labels taking a chance on records like that. Yeah, you know, and then and then obviously My Chemical Romance is Gerard Way, who also was involved in comedy and you know, the whole thing is circular. You know. I want to say he was partially responsible, too, for moving Pink Floyd from whatever studio they were at to um, Apple Studios, or Abbey Road Studios, yeah, Abbey Road. Um, yeah. when they were yeah. doing um, their first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which, yeah. was, felt, yeah. which was recorded the same, same year as Sgt. Pepper. That's right. Yep, 1967. That's it. Yep. Right, you are. What a year! Can you imagine? Uh, I'm, I'm, a, and Pike with the Gates I, I'm a huge um, Floyd fan as well as a Beatles fan. Yeah, you and me both. 
So what reaction have you gotten from uh, the surviving members of the Beatles and the surviving family members of, of John yeah, and George? It's been, it's been very humbling. You know, they, they have all been incredibly supportive of this project. Um, Paul McCartney actually wrote us a note saying how much he enjoyed the book and he liked the treatment of Brian and admired Andrew's artwork. Um, you know, Paul Paul is actually a huge comic book fan. I don't know if you guys knew that. Um, I didn't know, know that. Yeah. 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 yeah one of his that. deep cuts on one of his records is a track called Magneto versus Titanium Man. Um, yeah. and, it, and it is actually awesome. not a metaphor. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's a narrative about a fight between Magneto and Titanium Man. You know, <laughs> oh, the fans have read so metaphors <laughs> into it, but, it, but it's just because Paul's a comic geek. That's so awesome. um, so that in particular meant a lot to me because I think he really understood what we were trying to do by using the graphic novel media to and, tell Brian's story. If I remember right, Paul has a home down in my neck of the woods, too, down here in Central Florida. Is that right? I didn't know I believe that. So. I believe so, yeah. Uh, I think something with his current yes, wife um, and her family, they being down in this area cool. so yeah he's been he of, of, of all the four have probably been the most vocal but but we've received uh we've received notes from all of them and you know we're turning the fifth right now into a television event series and one of the things i'm very proud of with that is that we secured Beatles music for it and in order oh, to do that nice. literally had to get the sign off from paul ringo yoko and, and olivia harrison so they all um had to read the book and had to read the script and and, and sign off on it so um so that's been a, a real honor as well. So when when's the tentative release of the TV series? Or yeah, mini, so, I'm assuming so it's I'm, a miniseries? I'm the script. It'll be a six-part miniseries, a six one-hour episodes. Um, we've done a deal with a company called Sonar Entertainment that are, uh, are very well-respected television financiers and producers. And I just finished writing the pilot script about a month ago. And uh, we expect within the next handful of months we'll be, an, an, be able to announce our, our director, our key cast, and our network. Um, and, uh, uh, and then we should be on track to shoot... I'm going to guess, you know, sometime mid-next year. And television moves very, very quickly. So if we, if we do shoot mid-next year, there's a chance that the, that it could be out at the end of next year. But I, I think that's probably ambitious. I'm going, to, I'm going to want to say, you know, early 2018 is probably the safest bet. Okay. And uh, and I genuinely believe within the next few months we'll be able to uh, to reveal to the fans the, um, the the networks that are interested. So so please, you know, follow us on Twitter. We're at Fifth Beetle. We're also on Facebook at the Fifth Beetle. We have a website at Beetle.com, and I really, I really do expect within the next few months through those media, we'll be, um, we'll be announcing our, our network and where you'll be able to see the darn thing. Awesome, Very exciting time. Now, I'm assuming a lot of this will be filmed on location over in Liverpool and <laughs> in other areas, uh, especially that after is the plan. The, yeah, uh, that awesome. is the plan. You know, I mean, li- Liverpool in particular, it was like like everywhere in Europe, it was bombed during the war, but because it was a port town, uh, you know, it had certain strategic importance. So, it, so a lot of the um, a lot of the iconic Liverpool architecture was thankfully spared during the bombs. So, um, so a lot of the locations that we want to shoot in Liverpool are still there. I mean, obviously, the you'll have to dress certain things up. There are different stores now. Things obviously look more modern, but um, but the city, you know, really the, the key, you know, Matthew Street and the Liver Building, and you know where Brian's old office was, and where the Cavern Club was. You know, all those streets haven't changed that much. You know, I mean, superficially, obviously, like they're brighter, the di- different types of stores, different store windows. But um, it just, you know, for karmic reasons, it would make sense to shoot there. But even just for practical reasons, it's like why go somewhere and build those sets when they when the real thing is right 
right there. So, um, so I suspect I suspect that'll be the plan. Awesome. Now, this hasn't been your only dabble with uh, rock and roll, so to speak. You're yeah, no. You're working with Linus Morse. You're working with Linus Morset. I am indeed. Yes. So I'm uh, I'm working very closely with Alanis, and we are adapting her album "Jagged Little Pill" for the stage. And uh, I can tell you that we are just about closed on uh, on various deals, and we should be announcing our director, our writer, and uh, and in some ways, most importantly, our theater um, within the next few months. And I can tell you, uh, and when I say our theater, uh, you know, in, in the theater business, once you you know have a have a, a secured theater, you know that's where the expression "the show must go go on" comes from. Yeah. Um, you know, you have your theater and you've got your opening night, and you don't have any choice. You, you have you have to make that opening night. And we literally have a theater, and we will have an opening night in uh, in early 2018. And so so the the show will go on. Uh, so next year is going to be a lot of work for uh, a lot of hands on deck to get Jagged Little Pill ready. You know, for many, if you if you were to Google it you would see that we made an announcement a few years ago and you would be very right to ask like what's happening with that the vague hasn't said a word about that in years maybe it's not happening oh but, no uh, that's that's common gotta, <laughs> it, i mean it really is it's uh you know if you, if you work in the business you know these things do happen yeah. all the time but yeah. fans you know it does feel like we've been awfully quiet but um, next year there's going to be a furious amount of activity in order to make a 20 20- 18 release date. So very, very exciting times for us to that too. And then you also worked uh, with Green Day with American Idiot. I did. Oh, that's I did. one of my favorite uh, CDs of all time. Oh man, it's, it was it a... CD. Yeah, huge, huge privilege for me to work on that show. Now, I remember it it was had several Tony nominations. I I don't remember if it won anything. Yeah, I think we won Best Designer. We won Best Set Design. Um, We were nominated for Best Musical. We didn't win that year, Um, but but we did win Best Set Design. So um, so awfully proud of the show. So I'm also going to add to your credits a 25-time Tony Award winner. With well, my over- shows have won. Yes, my shows have won twenty five Tony Awards over forty four uh, nominations. It that still a, counts. A, it is a statistic I'm awfully proud of. It's true. Uh, that, that still counts. But, uh, but I give. I must give the shows the credit. It's, it's these wonderful shows I've been privileged to produce. Not not me. It's my. It's it's the art. It's the art. But thank you. Uh, if, if the shows weren't there, it wouldn't be possible for you to get that recognition, and vice versa. Yeah. If it wasn't for you, those shows wouldn't get that recognition. That's very kind. Of that's what yeah, I, no, I, I get for being a technician. <laughs> I, I I totally understand. No, it's it's uh it it, it, it working in Broadway has been a great joy for me. Um, you know, I, I the first show I ever worked on was Mel Brooks, the producers, and and that was really the show that that I learned the ropes from. And you know, if you follow Broadway, you'll know that show was tremendously successful. Yeah. So I, I was very. Uh, very fortunate, both financially. I mean, that you know, in the early days when I started my own company, that was one of the first things that I did. And um, you know, the, the show was so financially successful that for the first few years of my company's uh, life, you know, in some ways, the lights were being kept on by a Broadway show, and you know, people in the industry were like, "How'd that happen? Like, that's not how it's supposed to work." <laughs> you know, so I was certainly uh, very proud of that. But also, just from a from a sort of you know professional workflow standpoint, you know, just that's how I learned how to produce. It was, and, and what a great show to learn. From. You know, it was a uh, it was a big old Broadway musical, but it was also at the time, you know, bucked a lot of traditional Broadway trends. You know, it was really an unusual show for Broadway, and so it was a it was a great show to learn from. Awesome. Now, what is your involvement with Valiant Entertainment? Because I think I've um, seen your name associated with them as well. Yeah. So so. Um 
you know, uh, Valiant, as as you probably know, was uh, was reborn several years ago yeah. um, from from uh, from the ashes, and and was a primarily great, reborn by sorry, a great relaunch. Yeah, it was a, a very inspiring, and uh, and the two guys who really did that were uh, Dinesh Shamdasani and Jason Kotari, and uh, both of whom are very dear friends of mine. And Jason, in particular, um, he and I both went to to Wharton together, so we were classmates. I was several years older than him, so we were never actually <laughs> classmates. Um, but I but I knew I met Jason through through Wharton. Uh, basically, basically, literally, I, I went back and did a guest lecture for a class that Jason was in, and he approached me after the class, and, uh, and that's how we became friendly. And uh, when he and Dinesh were um, were uh, you know. Uh, Negotiating to acquire the Valiant assets, you know, I was just giving him some some advice as as a friend, really, and uh, and I guess I guess I gave him good advice. He uh, and it was a successful acquisition. And when he was looking for for the initial round of, of, of fundraising for, for money, basically, um, you know, I, I really I was huge. I was a Valiant fan. I'm a huge comic fan. I was a fan of Jason and Dinesh. I believed in them as 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 business people and as creative guys. And so I, I invested a little bit of money in. To that relaunch, it was uh, compared to some of the folks who have come in and, and added their finances uh, to the Valiant coffers. My investment was small, but it was real, and, uh, and so as a result of that investment, I also served on um, on the first board of directors for the company, uh, which was a great honor and great fun to be so deeply involved in the relaunch. I'm not on the board anymore, but I was on the board for a little while. Um, now I'm just uh, literally I have a vested uh, interest. I do still maintain my investment there, um, but now I'm just. A a sort of passive investor and, and a writer. I, I, I love the titles, and you know, whenever they uh, whenever they allow me to write something for them, I do. I, I wrote a short story for Harbinger that I was really proud of, and um, nice. you know, and I'm constantly talking to those guys about doing more sort of one shots and short stories. You know, b- because of kind of what I do. Uh, you know, as much as I love comics, I'm not really look, looking to to get a regular gig. I'm writing a series. Uh, you know, being a series writer as as much as I think that's would be awesome and, and is an honor for to be able to, to, to get those offers and those people who do that work are, are my heroes. Um, but it's just not what I want to do. You know, I want to write my own graphic novels. I want to write screenplays. So, um, so you know, what, what I'm hoping to do as, I get, as I'm about to do with Star Trek is to do more sort of of these one-shots, one-off anniversary issues, short stories. Um, so I love doing that stuff, and, and it gives me a chance to, to fly my, my, my freak flag, if you will, you know. <laughs> would you do maybe a miniseries or... Yeah, I would love to do that kind of thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Top, top three favorite Valiant Entertainment uh, or Valiant comic titles. Um, so I, I am a huge Harbinger fan. Um, okay. So that would probably uh, that would probably be be the uh, well Harbinger and Rye probably would be tied for, for one and two for me. I just remember uh, you know reading Rye book you know pre relaunch you know sort of the old Rye books and just thinking that character was just so weird and so cool and I could never totally understand those stories but they. They just like had an emotional impact on me, um, and then certainly, you know, what they did with it in this with this crazy sort of Blade Runner take almost on Rye. Right. It's pretty awesome mm-hmm. stuff, and so I, you know, that that really also has a pretty special place in my heart. Um, and then I'm not really sure what what would come in number three. You know, I, I growing up, I, I loved Ninjak. You know, I was a huge fan of of, of you know Bruce Lee and martial arts and, and, and ninja movies. And I was a huge fan of James Bond, and in a way, you know, Ninja kind of really was was sort of smashing those two things together. Um, but I also think the uh, the um, the writing on uh, on Bloodshot and um, and Exo Man of War is extraordinary. 
Uh, so, you know, it, it's hard for me to pick a third, but I would say that Harbinger and Rye are probably the two titles that are closest to my heart. My, I'll have to say my, my three favorite, um, Archer and Armstrong, uh, no particular order, but Archer and Armstrong, Quantum and Woody and Exo Manowar. But I, yeah. I've been loving the, I've been loving the writing on Faith. Faith has been an amazing oh, yeah. title. Totally. It's an absolutely game amazing changing. title. Yeah. yeah. Game, game changing. No question about it. That character is, it's, it's just, it's, it is just inspiring what yes. Valiant is doing for Faith. I mean, it's just inspiring. So not what you would normally think of as, uh, your stereotypical hero totally. with, yeah. with her. And, and it's, uh, so it's cool to see it uh, being successful. So great. Yeah. So great. So what about, um, non Valiant favorites? Um, you know, I'll, I will be totally honest. You know, I've been so busy lately that I, I'm not reading it as much as I would like. Um, I uh, have been a longtime fan of Charles Soule's Letter 44, um, so I'm really oh, yeah. enjoying that, watching yeah, it, yeah. you know, hurdle towards its, its conclusion. Um, you know, I grew up reading Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the, uh, yeah, the yeah. Spin and Laird run of that, the Mirage Studios issues, yep. you know, the first 20 issues or so were really seminal for me. And I'll My be honest that, that yep. after they stopped after the two creators stopped working on it, I, I sort of lost uh, lost my love of it, and I think IDW really has their you know those books really have sort of brought me back to the turtles. Yeah, they're so, doing a good job on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really excited about that. Um, uh, you know, also at IDW, I think the uh, the Star Trek books are great. Yeah, you know, yep. their um, ongoing Star Trek series really feels um, like that perfect cross between the the heart of the original series as well as sort of what makes the new, new movies so great. Mm. So I'm enjoying those. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know I, I just read as much as I can, but ought to be totally fair to, and, and honest, like I, I'm really the, the pile of unread books on my desk is, is larger than <laughs> that I've actually read. Uh, I'm way yeah. behind too. I know how you feel. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's so much. The, the good news is there's so much great stuff out there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Such as such as this great graphic novel that came out in 2013 called The Fifth Beetle. I don't know if you know that. Thank you. What Brad. was what was um, the reaction from the fan base, the Beatles fan base, about this book? Yeah, I mean, I'm very proud to say that the fans really immediately embraced it. Uh, you know, they they yeah. were. I mean, not unlike myself when I first started the research. You know, all these fans sort of realized I'm. A hardcore Beatles fan, and I know very little about Brian, much less, you know, the, the average music lover who doesn't, you know, may not be a massive Beatles fan, right. and may just have, like, a tangential interest in the band. Um, so so the fans were, were truly excited to finally have something about Brian that they could sink their teeth into, um, and I, I, I am just very proud to say that they, that the, the historians as well, you know, sort of embraced the book, you know, because it, it is a graphic novel. We have, you know, we want, we were more interested in, in the poetry of every, of the story than in the facts. And look, I, I've been researching it for 25 years, so the facts are important to me, and I, I wanted to make sure we got the facts right. But, you know, there are certain sequences where we would conflate facts or create, you know, the Beatles in this scene, you know, maybe they were in Tauntaun that weekend, not in Manchester, but it made sense to set it in a different location because of what was going on narratively. And, we, you know, we acknowledge that in the afterword of the book. So, so, But, you know, there were elements of that where I worried that some of the Beatles historians who really know their stuff would just, you know, take me to task on that. But everybody said, like, wow, we see why you made those choices and you really cut to the heart of the Brian Epstein story. It's the only way to tell it in, in 120 pages. Um, so it, it was very humbling to see the, the Beatles community, both the fans and the sort of the more formal historians really kind of embrace this book. And, and they're all really excited about the um, about the television show. You know, at the Fest for Beatles fans a, a couple of months ago, I um, 
to Sonar, my, my TV producing partners, infinite credit. They allowed me to read the pilot script. So I read the script from, from, from beginning to end at, at, uh, on the main stage at the Fest for Beatles fans. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say there was, it literally got a standing ovation. So, um, nice. so hopefully we can keep it up. Hopefully I won't keep, I won't let the fans down. <laughs> so how, how did, um, you mentioned like earlier when you were talking about Brian finally being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall and Fate Hall of Fame. They came to you as sort of an expert. So how does it feel to be considered an expert on this man that not too many people know much about? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's um it feel it's a real. I mean, it feels the short answer is it's wonderful. Um, you know, he's as I said, he's somebody whose life I've been researching since 1991. You know, I was born in '73. I'm 43 years old, and I've been researching this for like. 25 plus years so literally more than half my life I've been studying this guy's life I call him my historical mentor you know he's had such a profound impact on 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 me and my life so to be able to now feel like in, in some ways I can share that with the world and hopefully inspire other folks and, and maybe in some sort of backhanded way give back to him and, and help help you know recognize his legacy like that that feels like just just really um, good work you know um, definitely and, and, and I, I feel that right now, again, you know, whatever your your political uh, persuasions might be, you know, I think we we can all agree that, that this is a period where where people need to be following their dreams and working on on things that will inspire our fellow Americans. And, and you know, so I'm trying to create work that will have some sort of inspirational message. And the fact that I've been recognized as somebody who under who can share Brian's inspiring story with the world makes me feel like I'm I'm really, I guess, putting it crudely, I'm doing my job. You know. You know, it's like I'm not a politician or an activist, but as a writer and a producer, it's my job to tell stories that are going to inspire people. That's the way I look at my job. And I guess I'm doing my job. Um, so that that's been great. And I will say it's also it's also been very humbling and a little bit frightening because I also feel like I can't screw this up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the Beatles gave me access to their music for the TV show. It's the first time they've ever done that. Oh, and wow. mostly that's super exciting and, and, and a real honor. But there's a part of us that also feels feels a little bit of a little bit of fear you know like let's not screw <laughs> sure. this one up you know um, <laughs> a little bit of pressure yeah. <laughs> yeah totally totally and in a good way you know that i think you get the best work when you when when things are under pressure but um but there's there's real pressure there both the fans and, and the, now the band themselves it's like i don't you know they, they honored us with those rights i don't want to i don't want to let them down you know yeah. no i have a feeling you probably will not be letting anyone down so <laughs> thank you i hope not you know and look we try we try along the way to um to get constant feedback you know you'd asked earlier about you know let, making sure that uh, letting the band know you know from the very first day i began working on this project as a formal project it was about a decade ago one of the very first things i did was i reached out to paul ringo yoko and olivia harrison and uh, and i said i'm not asking i even made a joke i said I, i'm not asking for anything i was like i'll probably call you back one day and ask for something um, but today I'm just introducing myself you know I just want you to know I'm doing this thing and you know and every time there was some milestone that I secured my artist I secured a publisher I Andrew had written you know painted his first few pages I would, would fill them in and you know as a result of that over many years you know we got feedback and we got goodwill and we knew what we were doing right and we maybe got a heads up when something was 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 heading in the wrong direction and it's the same thing with the fan community I, I read them the pilot script and you know, I, I did mention that there was a standing ovation, but I also announced that, you know, when I read it, if anyone has feedback, 
please come talk to me at my booth afterwards. And, and they did. And a number of people, you know, who knew like certain anal details of history, like called me on a few facts. And I was like, I'm glad you did because I didn't know that. And I want to get that right. And you know, so we're trying to do that in the way is not just like, not just dive into a, ba- a vacuum and feel pressure and hope we get it right. But like very humbly let people along the way sample what we're doing and, and say, we're proud of it, but maybe, maybe we screwed up. Like, let us know. I want to know, you know? So, and I think at the end of the day, again, if we've done our jobs correctly, really, like, yeah, I guess it was me, Kyle, and Andrew that created the Fifth Beatle, but it really was, it really does belong to all of us. It belongs to the fans. It belongs to Brian's family. It belongs to the band. I really feel like because we've courted so much feedback and so much support along the way, you know, everyone is partially responsible for this thing's existence. Nice. Awesome. Thanks. So you kind of mentioned kind of casually that you like talked to Paul McCartney, Yoko Ono, and, and those types of people. Like it's like it's nothing, but it's how does it feel to like be speaking with on speaking terms like that with the oh, historically you know, important people like that? Yeah, look, and I and I hope I didn't come off too too blase about that because <laughs> okay. I mean, like, it's not it's not like I talk to them often, you know. Right. And more often than not, it's you know sending an email to their publicists or their attorney or their manager and saying please pass this off, you know. So so um, you know it's it's really not as though I'm on a on a first name basis with these folks, but 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 I do have like an open line of communication to them. And, and that that has been another huge dream come true. There's no question about it. It's uh, you know I, I really I feel incredibly lucky. I feel like I'm, I'm living my dreams. I, I really am. Nice. And, and all I can say like is that the way that I got there was by following my dreams and believing that they were possible. You know, I mean when I was when I was much younger, I was like. It's crazy to think of some Indian kid writing comic books and, and, you know, producing musicals. It's like, it's just not what you do. You know, it's not what's expected of me. And it's not, there, there weren't doors that were immediately opening to me. I was supposed to be a doctor, an engineer, you know? Uh, and, 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 here, and here you are with Beatles fans just saying. Love it. Well done. <laughs> so, how how has the um, transition been from doing the comic book to doing the TV show? Has there been a lot of changes, or is it staying pretty much the same? Or yeah, it's been, it's. I mean, it's been super fun and exciting. You know, the um, as I mentioned earlier in this call, you know, part of my mission with the graphic novel was to create something that would be you know a relatively quick read. You know, we very purposefully you know wanted this book to be you know 120, 130 pages. Uh, so that people could feel like they could, could, could consume it quickly on a, on a short airplane flight. And, you know, the, the television series is going to be six hours. So, like, literally, it can't just be the book. I mean, the, you know, no matter how slow you read, the book won't take you six hours to read. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you know, te- you know, we went when uh, when I only have a few seconds to say what I'm up to, I say like, oh, we're adapting the graphic novel into a television series. But but a better a better explanation is we are expanding it. You know, uh-huh. to use a sort of you know a, a phrase that's more often here with superheroes. You know, we've sort of created the Brian Epstein Beatles universe, and now we're we're populating that universe with more characters and more stories and and through all these these characters some of which might be too quote unquote minor to include in a 120 page graphic novel but certainly will be very important in a six hour series you're going to just get more a more flushed out picture of who Brian was as a person you know I'll give you an immediate example um, you know Pete Best was yep. the Beatles drum, 
drummer before Ringo Starr. Right. And one of Brian's first tasks was he had to he had to fire Pete and bring in Ringo. And you know, uh-huh. I decided that we were not going to tell the Pete that story in the graphic novel. You know, as a writer, I believed that the only way to properly tell Pete's story would be to establish Pete as a character. You know, you can't just you know part of what was so impactful in that moment is that Pete was and still is a lovely guy, and you needed uh-huh. to realize how heartbreaking this was for him and how unfair yep. it was for him. And you know, so it couldn't just be two pages in the graphic novel of Brian firing Pete. It needed to be you know six to eight pages of establishing Pete as a character. And then two or three pages of the firing, and then a couple pages of the aftermath, and like all of a sudden, it's like twelve pages about Pete Best in a one hundred thirty-page graphic novel, and that that just doesn't make sense, you know. Right. Um, well, however, in a six-hour miniseries, like. I'm going to tell you right now, Pete Best is a major character in the pilot episode, oh. and uh, you know, and the television format really allows you to do that in in ways that actually film wouldn't. You know, if you've been following the Fifth Beetle for um, since it came out in 2013, you'll know that for the first couple of years we were developing it as a film. And the reason, one of the reasons we switched over to television is because it does afford us these other opportunities. And, and quite frankly, television has changed so much in the past, you know, five, six years. Right. It's totally different and exciting place than it's ever been. But, you know, in film, you can't have a character that's a, or, I mean, you can obviously do whatever you want, but it's not, it would be very atypical to have a character in the first 20 minutes that's a major character that then disappears unless that character either dies or his disappearance is a major part of the narrative that, that continues to go on. But in, in television, it's totally acceptable to have somebody like Pete Best be a major character in episode one, but then never appear again. Like that's that's okay. That's right. not television. No. And so, um, so I'm really excited about about the, uh, the the way that we're able to expand the graphic novel to TV. Now, let me. I, I don't remember if my memory serves me right or not. Uh, you might know. Wasn't there in the early early stages? I think right around the time. Um, right, right before Pete was let go, wasn't there also another fifth musician? Another bass player. Group- sure. Yeah, there was, um, Stu Sutcliffe was the original right. bass player for the band. That's right. And, uh, and they were in Hamburg. Stu literally was a fifth Beatle. In other words, there were five members of the band. Um, you know, uh, Paul, um, Paul McCartney is, as, as anyone who's been to any of his shows these days know, I mean, he, the guy plays everything. I mean, if you look oh, at yeah. liner notes on his, on his albums, he's an incredibly accomplished musician. The only reason that he became the bass player for the Beatles is because Stu stayed behind in Hamburg and they needed a bass player. Um, you know, it was you know Paul. Paul grew up playing the piano. He wasn't a bass player by background. He kind of played the bass because because the band needed a bass player, and it turned out he was really good at it, and so it stuck. Um, but uh, but Stu was was the fifth Beatle on the bass back in the day. And uh, you know, there's a there's the movie Backbeat, uh, yep. which was also turned into a, a theatrical production. And, and uh, really, that show is about uh, Stu Sutcliffe. And in the comics world, there's a wonderful graphic novel called Babies in Black that's really more about Astrid, who's the girl that that Stu um, stayed behind in Hamburg for. But it really is about Astrid and Stu. So if you're a if you're a comics and Beatles fan, uh, I, I also highly recommend that book. Cool. So my memories did serve me right. Sure did. <laughs> this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really interesting. I was I did like a Google search for the fifth beetle, and there's like a, a lot of people that are trying to kind of make the the claim to actually who the fifth beetle was, like Pete Best and and uh, George Martin and sure. and of course Brian and uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it's a, at the end of the day, you know, I, I love the title. It's a catchy title. It looks, it's a great title for, for a graphic novel. You know, it's, it's a, you know, there's a number of reasons why it was wonderful as the title of my book. But at the end of the day, I'll be the first to admit, it's a little bit silly to argue who was the fifth Beatle. You know, this is, it's a colloquial title. It's not like you, you have, it's not like an award that sits on somebody's desk. I am the fifth Beatle. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, and so, and, and the truth is there's a lot of people that are deserving of, uh, of, of accolades and credit for for making the Beatles who they were you know obviously I Brian has a, an incredibly important place in my heart and in my history and so for me he deserves the title of the fifth Beatle um, you know and, and at the end of the day it really is, is how do you define fifth Beatle and, and for me I think the concept of fifth Beatle as applied to the Beatles or as applied to anything you know when you joke around like it's the he is the fifth Beatle of, of X you know right. or, or she is the fifth Beatle of X like for me what that means is it's almost like the secret weapon behind the scenes who does something different um, to help that thing succeed. You know, I believe that, you know, every filmmaker needs a studio to take a chance on them. Every artist needs a gallery. Every photographer needs a magazine or, you know, whatever it is, you know, you need that that other thing to help a piece of art get exposed. And to me, that's what it means to be the Fifth Beatle. You know, if your definition of Fifth Beatle is like, no, no, it needs to be music. It's about the music. Then Brian doesn't count at all. Like, Brian did not get involved in their music. In that case, maybe it is George Martin or Pete best or whoever, if that's how you define Fifth Beetle. So it sort of depends on, on, you know, how you look at the thing. I, I think the Fifth Beetle, it, it has to be a, a shared title between George and Brian. Yeah, I mean, it, certainly I mean, between George and Brian, you're covering all your bases. You know, there's yeah. no question about that. You know, Paul McCartney, you know, he said he did say, you know, uh, if anyone was the Fifth Beetle, it was Brian. And, he, and we slap that on every piece of marketing material we've got. <laughs> on the back of the book, yeah, yeah. A great little tagline. Um, you know, but if you actually look at the interview from which which he says that, he then goes on to to, to say that George Martin was like a fifth beetle as well. And what he says is that, um, and when George died, he you know paradoxically also said George was the fifth beetle. So what gives, right? Um, but you know, in that in that early interview about Brian, Paul says, um, you know, I may be getting the quote a little off, but this is almost verbatim. He said a lot of people uh, speak about George Martin as being the fifth beetle, but the truth is, you know, when we first got to George through Brian we were sort of fully formed. And in the early days of the band, like prior to, to George even being on the scene, Brian was very much a part of the group in those days when nobody cared. You know, and in some ways, that's what it is really to be a member of a band. Like if any of you've had mm-hmm. had friends or loved ones in bands, you know, you'll know that like those early days when you're when those bands are struggling, that's what it really is to be a band member, to be like, yep. you know, sweating it out, carrying the gear, setting it up, you know, sticking it in the back of a taxi or in a van like Brian was there in those days, you know, he wasn't. And, and, and that's that's a very special thing, because none of those other guys who, who claim the title, you know, were there in those days when the Beatles were nobodies, you know. Right. So, it seemed like he put a lot of his own money and, and time into them as well, like totally. buying all their records up and things like that mm-hmm. totally. to get them started. Totally. Yeah, that's why I think he deserves the title. But, you know, I I can't remember. I don't know which one of you was that said it. I mean, between Brian and George, I think we're covering all our bases, you know? Yeah. George George deserves it as well. I really think, though, 
that you can tell by reading your book that Brian kind of was a, a bit of a genius in a way to 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 the, go to the lengths he went to to get the Beatles out there. And there was I mean, the word the word is visionary. I mean, there's no question. Yeah, about it. yeah, definitely. Had, yeah, you know, the guy had vision. Yeah. And those early Beatles tapes that he was peddling, like the band didn't sound that good. I mean, if you if you go back and listen to those tapes, the fact that you know everybody talks about the fact how. Every record label in the industry passed on the Beatles, you know, and what idiots those big record labels are. You know, well, the truth is, if you actually listen to the tapes, like, you wouldn't blame them for passing on it, you know? The fact that Brian could listen to those tapes and say, these guys are going to be bigger than Elvis. I mean, it is kind of crazy. You know, it it, it is visionary. Like, how the hell he saw that and heard that? You know, well, we'll, no matter how much research I do, I will never understand how he heard and saw that, you know? I'm trying to remember. It's it's visionary. I'm trying to remember, see if I have any of these, because... I'm looking on my iTunes folder and I have uh, like the multi-track masters um, day in a life with the Beatles, uh, Sergeant Pepper. Uh, she's leaving uh, with a little help. Whereas the actual uh, multi-tracks. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, if you go back and listen to like, um, you know, Tony Sheridan doing my Bonnie, you know, which yeah. is like, part, you know, the Beatles are their backing group. And that was before, you know, anyone had heard of the Beatles. You know, I mean, it's really nothing special. It, I mean, it's like, you would never imagine that the band that's on that record would go on to like change the face of pop music to, to use Brian's quote, elevate pop music into an art form. Yeah. Like that's just that. I mean, to listen to, I mean, and that's it. Brian listened to that record to Tony Sheridan playing my Bonnie with the Beatles as a backing group and somehow said the backing group on that band, they're going to elevate pop music into an art form. It's like, huh? what? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, just like, it's, it's, it's insane. Um. Yeah, I'm looking at my anthology album. They're like, I'll be back. Take one or take two. Take three is on here. The demo for No Reply. Um, which I was surprised some of these actually got put out when they yeah, did yeah. when they did this album. Um, but like, I I have here. Here's take one. I can't buy me love. And this is straight out of the control room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for take one, I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, dry as can be, it, it, yeah, yeah. very rough. It's uh, that you know, with me being an audio engineer, though, to me, that's gold as well to go. Yeah. To hear how, what it was done and, and that part of history was actually captured. Um, I love that. Yeah, pretty wild. So I think that's going to almost wrap it up. Um, Thank you, guys. It's, again, thanks so much for being on. Again, working a lot of stuff. This is a really cool chat. <laughs> oh, thanks. Where, where can people find you or the Fifth Beetle again on the internet? Thank you for asking. Um, so the Fifth Beetle, we have a website at fifthbeetle.com. We're also on Twitter at, at @fifthbeetle, and we are on Facebook uh, at the Fifth Beetle. And please do follow us because we um, we do expect to be making some some big announcements in the next few months about director, star, and network for the television series. And uh, as we've been discussing, the book is now out in expanded edition paperback at the low low price of fourteen ninety nine. Um, and it should be pretty easy to find in all the comic stores and all the major online yep. sites. Um, so, uh, so you shouldn't have too much trouble finding it, but, uh, but certainly if you go to darkhorse.com or fifthbeetle.com, there are various links 
to purchase the book. So, so please check that out. And the, hard uh, copy and, as well. and the hard copy is certainly uh, out as well, although we are slowly phasing that out to just, um, to, because, uh, because of all the new cool material that's in the expanded edition. Well, um, that means it'll be a collector's item. So it will yep. be a collector's item for those of you who are collectors. The hard covers will nice. be collectors. And, uh, and anyone who's interested in following my theater work and, uh, Jagged Little Pill, um, with Alanis, uh, you can find more info on that at tuarient.com. That's T-I-W-A R-Y-E-N-T dot com. And, uh, and I am also on Facebook personally at Vivek J. Tuari, and I'm on Twitter at, at Vivek J. Tuari. That's V-I-V-E-K-J-T-I-W-A-R-Y. Um, and uh, I accept all my friend requests because I love to talk and I love to share what I'm up to. So please do uh, find me and, and, and uh, connect with me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's going to conclude it for Weeby Geeks this week. Until next time. Want to know more? <laughs> So, um, the bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? This has been a Weeby Geeks production.